Amazing Grace Kona welcomes you to today's lesson from Pastor Izzy Manzo. Our prayer is that today's lesson will spiritually feed and uplift you. Now, here's Pastor Izzy. Well, guys, would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? This is one of the portions of Scripture that we're going to come to in chapter 8 when we get there that answers a question that was one of the biggest questions I ever had about God and faith and how do you know if you can get into heaven? How do you know for sure? Anyone ever thought this? How would you know for sure you're going to go to heaven? If you ever had that question today, I get to show you the answer to that because Paul writes it to the church at Corinth. Now, Paul's writing, and in this chapter, chapter 7, he started the chapter saying, now concerning the things of which you wrote about, your questions. What had happened here at the church of Corinth, they had sent word to Paul and said, we got some questions for you, Paul. And so they got questions for the founding pastor. What about if you're married? How do we handle these certain situations? So one of the situations we saw that Paul talked about that if you were married and you were with an unbelieving spouse and the unbelieving spouse was willing to stay with you, what were you supposed to do? Stay. You might be the one that is there as a light to that person to help them come to salvation. Now, if they don't want to stay, Paul said the believer is free. There's no condemnation. They're free to go on. Then he talks about the singles. What about if you're single? Are you allowed to marry? Or should you remain single? Paul, you see that his attitude was if you can receive it and you remain single, you have more time just for your devotion to be to the Lord. And we got all the way to verse 35 where he said, for these things I say to you, I write them for your own benefit, not to put restraint upon you. He's not putting rules on them. If you're single, you can't get married, but just to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. He says, I'm just writing so that you won't be distracted in your devotion to God. Now, this is a message that probably could be repeated to every church all the time. I can tell Paul is answering a few more questions that they had because he now touches on what about the virgin daughters and their dads? Remember in Middle Eastern culture, which by the way, we still somewhat honor this tradition of you had to ask for the daughter's hand in marriage. In their culture, you had to pay a dowry for the girl. You had to show that you were committed to take care of her. You had to cough up some things of value to give to the father as a gift to say, yes, I will take care of your daughter. Here's a present for you, sir. Can I have? It's not expected like I get her for sure. It's can I have her hand in marriage? To some people who don't know that tradition, then they read this verse, they don't get it. Let me just preface it with that. This is a culture where you had to ask for the girl's hand in marriage. I bet you someone in Corinth wrote to Paul saying, what if I don't want to give my daughter to that guy? He might have even put the names. This is from elder so-and-so over there in Corinth asking, do I have to give my daughter to that guy? He's terrible. Now, Paul doesn't mention any names. I'm just saying he could have been written like that. But concerning their questions, verse 36, but if any man thinks that he's acting unbecomingly towards his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, past her youth means in their culture, she's past the childhood days. Now she's become able to bear a child. If she's old enough to bear children and she's a virgin child, and if it must be so, then let him do as he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but he has authority over his own will, 
and he has decided in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, well, he will do well also. So he's saying to the dad, who has the right to make the call? The dad. I know this flies against a lot of our culture in America like this. Who gives a rip if the dad cares or not? I'm marrying her. It's only between me and her. In their culture, that did not fly. You might as well just sentence yourself to death. If you go demand or take the girl without permission, that was going to bring wrath upon you. Paul's saying, look, if the dad says okay, it's okay. But if the dad says no, guess what? It's still no. It's like Paul's answering the question, is a dad allowed to say no? You have it right here now. You know where it is in the Bible. Verse 37, he is allowed to say no. To you young men, remember this when you're considering how you talk to your prospective future father-in-law. You want to show respect because he has the authority to say no. He's allowed to. He's like, nope, that's my virgin daughter. Not for you. Now, this was also a safeguard, by the way, for the gals. I know some people don't look at it that way, but it was. Because there were some guys that they go to the Corinthian church. Oh, here's these beautiful young virgin girls. And they're like, oh, great. These Christian women, great pickings. Let's go get one of them. They didn't have to necessarily be a member of the church. Have you ever seen what we call missionary dating? They're not going to get close to God. They're going to get a spouse. This is spouse shopping. Look, why shop at the bar? There's better produce at the church. Let's go there. You might not think that way, but let me tell you, so there are some worldly folks that have figured this out. Go to the church to get the good ones. And they do. The rest of us are supposed to be here to look for God. And he says in Matthew 6, if you seek him first, his kingdom, his righteousness, then how many things get added? All things. You got your focus wrong. Now, if you're already here, we just need to redirect your focus heavenward. Now, look at the next verse, verse 33. He says, so then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well. He who does not give her in marriage will do better. He's even allowed to say no. Now, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. In other words, she can remarry someone else in the Lord. The covenant we take as husband and wife is for this life. I know this hurts some people's feelings because they were taught a romantic version of marriage. Like, we are soulmates for eternity. You may be, but you won't be husband and wife in the next life. Jesus even was asked this question in the Gospels. They asked him, well, there was a man he married, and then he died. He didn't have any children yet. So according to the law, it says the next older brother had to fulfill the duty of his oldest brother and take her as a wife and raise up offspring, you know, to carry on the name of his older brother. And so he takes his brother's widow and he dies. And then the next brother takes the two older brother's widow and he dies. Now, this is something the Pharisees asked Jesus. It was actually the sect called the Sadducees that were asking this. The sect of the Sadducees in Jesus's day where they were these religious snooty uppity ups that were like, we're the really knowledgeable ones of the word of God. We know all the stuff. But their philosophy was really, really blinded. They were so limited in their thing. They said anything we can't see with our natural eye or we can't hear or perceive with our senses, then it doesn't exist. They believe that you died and life ended, period. You're done. You're dead. 
And so when they proposed this question to Jesus, the end of the story, they said, and so in the next life, since all seven brothers had her, whose wife will she be? Now, first of all, they're Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection anyway. It's like a loaded question they were trying to sting Jesus with. And Jesus tells them, he says, you guys got it wrong on both points. First on the point that there's a resurrection, there is. But the second point you got wrong is that when we're resurrected in our new heavenly bodies, there won't be marriage or given in marriage. You won't be married to the one you were married to here on earth. Instead, we read about this glorious marriage. A marriage we are all invited to is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And who's getting married? Christ marries the church collectively. We become what's called the bride of Christ. So Jesus says, you got it all wrong as far as when we go into the next life. So our vows actually reflect this. When we do the marriage vows, we say, do you take this person until death do you part? So you vow to be their spouse in this life till death parts you. As soon as your vow is completed, when one spouse dies, you fulfilled your vow. Paul's just pointing out She's free to remarry. Only, he says, in the Lord. That doesn't mean she can go remarry some schmuck that's not serving the Lord. She says, get a good guy. But the answer is, truly, can she remarry? I also learned the attitude of Paul, verse 40. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think I have the Spirit of God also. So his opinion, he's not saying, thus saith the Lord, but my opinion is if she stays unmarried, she'll be a widow that can serve God with undistracted devotion. And she can just have her whole life devoted to the Lord. But is it a sin if she remarries? No. And God might know there might be another man out there that needs her to be his helpmate now. It's not a bad thing. But just so you know where the answer is, it's here at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Chapter 8, it starts off, it says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Well, we know that we all have knowledge about idols. Now, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. What was the culture influenced by in Corinth? What kind of background? What nationality of folks lived around Corinth area? You got some Italians. You got Greek culture. The Greeks were polytheistic, by the way. They had many gods, Zeus, Hermes, Paphrodites. They had all these different gods and goddesses, and they would have statues all over the place. Paul have to deal with people growing up with statues in their house of different gods and goddesses and then came to his church and he says, let me declare to you the one true God, God Almighty. And they're like, which one is he? Zeus or Hermes? No, no, no. Above all those guys. Those are actually with little g, false gods. I'm going to tell you about the true God. This is really eye-opening for them. He had already preached that message. Here he's just saying, we already have knowledge about this, but He'll tell some more because obviously they had some more questions about idols that he's going to have to go into further on into this chapter. But before he gets there, he makes a statement that I can't pass over. One that every Christian should probably highlight right on their mirror, put on the refrigerator. The end of verse one says, we all have knowledge, right? But knowledge makes arrogant or puffs up, the King James says. Knowledge puffeth up like a pastry. You ever seen someone with a big head, puffed up head? They're so smart. They know so much. They can't get through the doorway, their head's so big. That's what knowledge does. Knowledge puffs up. But Paul says, but love, love builds up. 
or edifies. Love looks out for the other person. It builds them up. Now, Paul says, if any man supposes that he knows anything, he knows not yet as he ought to know. Have you ever noticed when you really start to learn something, you really get into it and you're learning and you're learning, and the more you learn, the more you realize how much you have still yet to learn? You thought when you knew little, you had it down, man. I know it all. You like learned one verse of the Bible. I can tell you the Bible. I read one verse. I have taught every chapter, every verse, and all I can tell you is, oh my, there is so much more to learn. It's a weird thing. If you suppose you know anything, Paul says you don't know yet as you ought to know. You're just scratching the surface. You're just beginning. But listen to this. Verse 3, he says, but. This is a but that he's going to say, and verse 3 is probably the most important verse, I think, in the whole Bible. I'm going to tell you why I think it's the most important verse. When I was a new Christian, I was like, well, where do you start reading the book? And what's the first book of the Bible? Genesis. That's the Old Testament. What's the first book of the New Testament? Matthew. So I go like this. I start reading Genesis in the Old Testament. There's a New Testament, so I'll just start at the beginning, go to Matthew. So I started reading Matthew. And have you ever noticed when you read the Bible how sometimes you're reading along and you find yourself getting more questions about your faith than you're getting answers? You read it, you go, I don't get that. What about this? Pretty soon you're like, I better go to church. I got to find out what all this stuff means. Because like I literally was reading myself into a bunch of questions. And I'm reading along and I get to chapter six. I found a verse that I actually knew. It was when I got to verse 9 of chapter 6, it said, Our Father who art in heaven. I was like, oh, right. I found something in the Bible. I know this prayer already. And then I read on, If you forgive others their transgressions, verse 14 of Matthew 6, then your Father will also forgive you. But, but if you do not forgive, verse 15, Matthew 6, if you do not forgive others, then your heavenly Father will not forgive you. The only part of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus revisits is the forgiveness line. He doesn't talk more about the daily bread. We all get that. He doesn't talk more about your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. No, he only talks about the forgiveness thing. I knew the prayer. I just didn't know the zinger that came at the end. It seems kind of important. If you forgive, you get forgiven. If you don't forgive, guess what? I mean, I never even thought of it until then. I was like, this is loaded. It's a loaded prayer. Forgive me my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. What if I don't forgive those who sin against me? What did I just pray? Don't forgive me. That's a loaded prayer. You're going, God, forgive me as I forgive those that sin against me. Only I don't forgive them. That person really made me mad. They cut me off in traffic. I want to drive over the top of them. Lord goes, I ain't forgiven you. That's what you literally just prayed. Well, then I kept reading. It says, store up your treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy or thieves can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Oh, well, that's pretty good. I like that. And then it said in verse 25 of Matthew 6, don't be worried about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. Don't be worried about your body, what you're going to put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, nor do they reap, nor do they gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And how much more are you worth than them? Are you not worth more? 
This is the words of Jesus. This is good words. I mean, I was reading this. I'm a new Christian. I'm like, this is great. And then I get to verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. I'm like, this book is awesome. Until I get to chapter 7. And the verse verse says, do not judge. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by the standard of measure you make, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Can you imagine some guy walking at you with a log sticking out of his eye going, come here, let me help you get that speck out. You're like, get away, man. You know, smack me in the face with your own log. Jesus said, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye then you will see clearly enough to take out the speck of your brother's eye. And I went, oh, that's good. And I got to verse 7, Matthew 7, 7. This is an easy one to remember. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be open. I was like, I am on a spiritual high. This book is good. It says, verse 8, for everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and he who knocks, it shall be open. It doesn't say it might be open. If you ask God, you seek him, you knock, he'll open the door for you. It doesn't say maybe. And by the way, Jesus said that. That means I can count on it. Now, in everything, verse 12, he said, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way that you want them to treat you for this this is the whole fulfillment of the law and the prophets. We call it the golden rule. I didn't actually know the golden rule was a verse. When I was a new Christian, I was like, wow, I found the Lord's Prayer and I found the golden rule. All in like the same day reading. This is a great day. Oh, I like only read two chapters of the Bible, but I'm doing pretty good. Now I know everything. I knew two places in the Bible where I knew a verse that I already knew the verse, but I knew where it was now. I know it all. Until I read a little further, and it's in the middle of this chapter, I came to what I consider the question. Everyone who ever walks the earth will eventually come up with this question. Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, verse 13. The gate is wide and it's broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who are there upon it. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're wolves. They just got sheep's clothing on the outside. By the way, if you ever want to figure out if someone's a sheep or a wolf in sheep's clothing, they look the same on the outside, what they eat. The wolves eat sheep, sheep eat grass. Now Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? And every good tree bears good fruit, but bad trees bear bad fruit. And a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's all it's good for. It's just firewood. And so then you will know them by their fruits. Now, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven, he will enter. And when I read that, I was like, oh, here's the key. The one who does the will of the Father gets to go to heaven. The one that doesn't do it, he's not getting in. And then I read a little further. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, did we not cast out demons? And in your name, did we not perform miracles? 
And then I will declare to them, depart from me, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. He quotes Psalm 6, verse 8. Jesus does. Do you know God's got the right to say, get out? I didn't know you. Now, as soon as I read this, this was my question. It's not whether I know him. Because, see, I'm reading all the book thinking I got to know him to get in. I got to learn the secrets. Where's the verses? Where's the stuff that makes sure that I get into heaven? And the further I read, the more I realize it's not really based on whether I know the verses or I know him. What it's based on is if he knows me. I mean, I got to make sure he knows me so I can get in. And so my whole focus on the Bible shifted. I'm like, where is the verse that makes sure that he knows me? You know, you can say you know him. That doesn't matter. We're talking about the king of all kings, the one that's in charge of the whole universe. As a civilian, you can't walk up to the White House and go, let me in. I want to talk to the president. I'm a citizen. Sorry, doesn't work. As soon as I read this and it said, Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. I was like, is there a verse that says how we can make sure he knows me? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes he knows anything, he knows not yet as he ought to know, but, you better highlight verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. By the way, remember when the attorney went to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says to him, well, how's it read to you? He's like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. She said, good job. Go and do it. You'll live. The greatest command of all scripture is to love the Lord. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your being, love God. Is that an important one to point out to people in our culture? When they go to church and they hear all these wonderful messages about you just have to have a good self-image and you just have to think positive. That's all grand and everything, except you're missing out on one important thing. Even if you teach them how to do miracles and prophesy and do all these wonderful things and they do great works of charity and they help the poor and... Paul's going to go on and tell us in Corinthians here, if you do all these things and you don't have love, it's nothing. It's not knowledge is king. It's love is king. The most important thing you can take away from this today is just make sure that you love God. You're the only one that can tell if you love God in your heart. So what's a condition? What do I have to do to make sure he knows me? Love him. Is it a choice of my will? Yes. It's not a hard choice, by the way, because once you find out how much God loves you, you're like, this ain't hard. The Bible says we actually know how to love because he first loved us. It's not like the other way around. He doesn't say, you love me, and then I'll show you some love. No, he's like, I'll show you what love is. We just respond to that. We're wired where we respond so well when we're really truly loved, unconditionally loved. Because I love you, period. Now, I love you so much, I mean, I, you know, you're in a kind of a bad state there. And it's amazing how many people meet the Lord in a really down place in life. They're in the valley of despair. And God goes, I love you. 
And he meets the person right there. But, you know, he loves you so much, he doesn't say, I love you, but you'll have to get yourself out of that. No, he says, I love you so much, I'm going to help you. My love is unconditional. I love you, period. But I love you too much to leave you in that state. Come on, let me help you out. That kind of love is the love that we respond to. We go, oh, thank you for the love that you love us with. But if you don't want to say, I love you to the Lord, then you're going to have a big problem someday when we stand before him. Because you're going to go, bye-bye. Depart, I don't know you. Your eternal soul will be placed either in heaven or hell depending on your answer, your free will. It's your choice. Whether you want to respond to God and say, God, I'll love you. If you say, I'll love you, guess what? He goes, I know that guy. Come on in. Amazing Grace Kona thanks you for listening to today's lesson. You can listen to today's lesson or any of the radio lessons on iTunes titled Celebrate the Lord or at our podcast site, celebratethelord.org. And if your travels take you to Kailua Kona on the Big Island of Hawaii, come visit us. We meet Sunday mornings, 9 a.m. on the beach at the north end of the old Kona Airport. For more information on Amazing Grace Kona, go to our church website at amazinggracekona.com. Amazing Grace Kona is the original Calvary Chapel Kona.